Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Howdy do. Evan's back in Dallas for a little respite before he goes back to surprise. Uh, and then he will leave again before I get there on the 8th. Evan will leave once again because he does not like to be in surprise the same time I am. Well, that's well said, Kevin. Um, I actually, I if if there is anything that is true, I do like to be in surprise when you are there because at least I'm not deathly bored when I'm by myself. Um, <laughs> but mostly, our spring training tales are long, and oh, we could write a book about them from from the days that I made you sleep in the car. <laughs> You'll never top that one until last year when you. When you were not doing so well at the old oh spring. my gosh that was terrible I, I i've got to get over you know i i i seem to recall too many times going to spring training whether it was in florida or uh arizona and i and i've gotten sick and it, it seems like I, I i don't know if it's just allergies or what it is i, I just get something arizona arizona is bad it wears you out i mean the the dust and the allergies out there at this time of year it's just, it, it, it takes some time to get used to it. And by the time you get used to it, it's like, all right, it's time to go back home. Um, but Kevin, can we just for a minute, can we talk again? I know we've told this story before, but spring training tales that we have to tell over 27 years together from the time that our dear departed friend, Jerry Fraley took his computer to the computer repair shop in Fort Charlotte that a man was running out of his garage. And, you know, Kevin, you and I have embellished some of these stories a little bit, but I, 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 let's just set it up, right? Jerry was not the world's most patient human being on occasion. Um, on occasion? On occasion. He was all the time. Well, when it had to do with wait people at restaurants, he was very, very patient. The most, oh, my gosh. You know, it was, it was too much. Not yeah. so much. Not um, so much. But he, has, he was having some computer problems, and these were in the early days of the laptop. Uh, and he took his computer to what he thought was a computer repair shop in Port Charlotte, and it was a guy working out of his garage. And I believe you like to tell the exchange between Jerry and the computer repairman. What did the repairman say to Fraley after he looked at the computer? I think he said something along the lines of, Woo, he might well come look at this. He's got a whole keyboard full of letters. He was very surprised by the advanced technology that Fraley had brought in there. Um, yeah. Jerry, like, the thing is that when Jerry retold that story to us, it it, it was told with such vigor. <laughs> the best part was imagining the look on Jerry's face when all this was going on. Because as, as we said, Jerry did not suffer fools gladly uh, or at all. And, uh, and so... Yeah, I could just imagine the look on Jerry's face when all that was going on. I just, even now, obviously thinking about, it, I just, I just die laughing. I mean, you know, these are the kind of things that was always the most fun with Jerry because he was such a tough guy. But when you could get him laughing, there was just nothing better than that. Uh, true. And I mean, he could, the way he would tell stories and envisioning, envisioning him in those situations, it just, it was sitcom material. Um, but Port, Char Port Charlotte was full of sitcom material. I do miss a lot of Port Charlotte. I miss that we could go and have grouper sandwiches almost every night of, after spring training, that there was like an actual, what I felt like was an indigenous cuisine to Port Charlotte, which was Gulf Coast seafood. Yeah. Uh, I miss that there, there seemed to be an abundance of people who rode around on riding lawnmowers as if they were golf carts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, riding around on lawnmowers like it was a, a form of transportation parked up at the convenience store was just amazing. Yeah, I, I think that's where uh, they, they all got that from. Uh, uh, wasn't that uh, old possum that did that one time he got drunk and and uh, had to, to ride a riding lawnmower to the bar? I think that Are was you talking deal. about a, a talkie movie or is this one of the <laughs> movies from back in your day? <laughs> no, I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, well, and I'm having a senior moment. I can't think of his name. The, uh, his nickname was the country Western singer, the old, old possum. Uh, and he, he sang with, old uh, 
I never heard of old possum. <laughs> I can't believe you don't know this. You grew up in the South. Come on, man. It's, old possum. Uh, uh, did he anything? He was not possum kingdom. No, that's not. That's not correct. Uh, awesome. Let's, let, I'm going to look this up now. And have, I mean, we're embarrassing. George Jones, Kristen Vasquez, our producer. Yes, George Jones. Uh, really? And, and, George Jones, old passing? Yeah, they did because his eyes were close set, you know, and he was kind of always grinning all the time. So that and was he his, was always uh, crossing the road while cars were whizzing by. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, anyway, your, your favorite story, Kevin, of spring training always will be the great exchange between me and the man at the deli counter at the Texaco in Port Charlotte when I wanted to get a Cuban sandwich. And it was important that the Cuban sandwich be pressed on a grill, right? That makes it authentic. And I asked the guy, do you press your Cuban sandwiches here? And his response was, can a gas station you think I'm running here? Of course I do. (laughs) We don't have those moments in surprise. I love that. See, that's what I love about that guy. Was he understood the humor in that? What kind of gas station do you think I'm running here? I mean, what? See that with that with that kind of material, you don't need to be funny when you're when you write stuff because then people are writing it for you. That's what that's what's beautiful about it. Yeah, that, that of course. There's the the, the third uh, is, is of course the time I I showed up there and and Evan said, oh yeah, just just call when you get in and I'll give you directions to the house. I don't want to give you the directions now because I'm just too good to do that. And I'll just wait until you get here. And, we should and also fly from the kids. This was before Apple Maps kids. This was before smartphones. This was before anything, basically. You know, we were like riding on uh, on cave walls. Uh, and so I get there to, to Port Charlotte and I call Evan and there's no answer. Uh, it's like, Evan, you know, where, what are you doing? No answer, no answer, no answer. He never answers his phone. And, you know, I'm just thinking, well, at some point, he's going to answer or he's going to pick up his, I don't know, pick up his messages or something. And, uh, of course, he never did. So I didn't check into a hotel because I'm thinking, I've got a room. And I hear in this in this city, why should I get a hotel room? And surely my pal here will figure out, hey, where's Kevin? But, of course, he never did. So I slept in the back seat of my rental car my first night in Port Charlotte that year while Evan slept peacefully. And what had happened, of course, was that he had taken out his hearing aids so he could go to sleep. Uh, not thinking that maybe I need these hearing aids to hear the phone when my old pal Kevin calls to find out directions to the house. So, that, that, yeah, that was that was another one. Quite, quite a moment in, in um, my history. And the fact that we are still friends after all that. <laughs> Testament. It is. Well, you know what, Evan, you know, and, and I know she said this the other day, and people may think otherwise. I love Evan. He's he's great. He's like a brother to me, uh, maybe more than a brother to me. So uh, a burden. even more like a burden than a brother. Well, that's what I think about. It was my brothers were always picking on me when I was little. So uh, that's why I think of Evan as a brother. Uh, no, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. We've had a great time. It's been a lot of fun over the years uh, covering this old old ball team <laughs> so anyway uh that's, let's let's talk I, about that we'll just stand it on this i mean that was the thing about port charlotte we we all complained about port charlotte some because it was it was really the the least attractive of the florida sites at that point in time but the fact of the matter is port charlotte had character it was a it was a beach town and it was it had character and and there was there were there were challenges there but it just feels like in surprise you're just out training in a suburb, like you're training in a ski. Uh, yeah, it's not nearly that nice though. Uh, so uh, it, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan. You know, when they first went to to surprise, I was for it because frankly, it seemed like every time I went to Florida, uh, to Port Charlotte in particular, the weather was bad. You know, it's blustery and kind of cool and rainy and all that all the time. And then you go to Arizona, oh, the weather's always pretty nice, right? Uh, and, and that is basically true. The weather's always pretty nice, but I got to tell you, I'm just not a desert guy. Not, not, not a desert guy. Not, I'm not a brown guy. Not, not for brown. You know, I like green. I'm, I'm with brown. you. I like, I like, I like the blue. I like the water. The one thing that our, our long town place in Port Charlotte was on this little river inlet and there were always sailboats out there kind of parked overnight. And, uh, 
you always kind of heard, I always remember waking up in the morning and hearing like, um, the, uh, some of the metal on the, uh, sails kind of banging yeah. against the, uh, mast. And it was just such a nice vision and sound. Yeah. That's okay. just, uh, metal What's banging. The there's, there's nothing more pleasant than metal banging. Um, so, so uh, yeah. kind of like a bell. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Kind of like a bell. All right. Uh, so this year is spring training so far. Uh, we've obviously written a lot about, you have written a lot about the, uh, the new pitchers. And, and of course, at this point, I'm kind of tired of it. I, you know, I just, I just want to see them pitch. Uh, I, I don't want to hear anything more about them. Let's just see how you do. Uh, what I have uh, watched so far, or at least I get to see a little bit of it, and by the way, Rhett, Evan, did you did you know that the Cleveland broadcasters kind of went off on Globe Life Field uh, during that uh, uh, game the other day? Sunday? No, what did they have to say? <laughs> I'm not sure who it was. It was clearly former players. I don't even know who who the Guardians broadcasters are. Uh, but there were three guys in the booth, and one of them referred to Globe Life Field as a warehouse and said that it needed more lighting in there. Uh, and and you know, as it's like. Why are we even talking about Globe Life Field? You're in Arizona. Uh, but anyway, they were. And I just thought it was interesting. Of all the complaints to have that, that, that say that it was dark, it's not one of the complaints I would have. For for a retractable roof stadium or or an indoor stadium, it's one of the has some of the most some of the best natural light of any I've been in. I it, it's a weird feeling though. I think from from the press box and from the off from the broadcast booth. It does feel a little bit dark up there because you are up in. I'm, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck or anything, but being up in the rafters there, it does feel a little bit dark. But I know when I've been down on the field or when I've been in the stands on the lower bowl, it doesn't feel dark at all. As, and and so I think it is one of those things. It depends on your on your point of view. But where we sit, you know, up there, and it's kind of under right underneath the overhang. It, there, there there just doesn't seem to be a ton of light up there. And I could see how some people would get that would get that impression, but I don't think I've ever heard a player say it's too dark. I don't think I've ever heard a player talk about a ball getting lost in the lights there. I do think it's something that based that that's an illusion based on where media um, ends up sitting in the ballpark. That could be. I just think you, know, you, you look around, you you got light coming at you from three different sides, and in most of the retractable roof stadiums, it's only on one side. And so I, I, I give them, I give them props for that. I mean, there are other things that I obviously don't like about the ballpark, and I've, I've been over that before. Look, I, I just think architect. I, I think again, architecturally, it gets poor marks, especially when you compare it to the park that they came from. Right, the the old ballpark had had some architectural feel to it, and it had a real style. And this does look much more office building. Um, warehouse like but I'll, I'll say this with the roof open on nights when the roof is open that stadium is really nice and when the roof is closed it's really comfortable and those are two things that you often say about the old ballpark well listen you, you can't compare it to the old ballpark it's a retractable roof stadium you have to come let's compare apples to apples if you uh, the other retractable roof stadiums that i have been in or even the, the dome <clears throat> excuse me the domes i've been in I think it compares favorably to, favorably to all of those on the inside. Uh, I'm not, maybe not so much on the outside. I, I, I don't think they did a great job on the outside. My complaints on the inside are twofold. Uh, one, why in the world they had to put that garage door in center field and within the batter's eye? Why did you have to put that there? This is what everybody's looking at. Every great ballpark, the scene is always from home plate looking out. What does that look like? Somebody, Jeff, our old pal Jeff Rue posted a picture of the Pirate Stadium, which, of course, sits right there on the river. And what a spectacular view that is and how pretty it is. And, of course, you can't do that with a retractable roof stadium. You're just not going to have it. Uh, but Royal, you got where your only view would be of a roller coaster. Yes, exactly. So, and then the other part problem I have is the uh, when you're watching the game on television, which most fans are, is that – the, the view from center field to home plate, and you're watching people eat nachos. I, you know, I don't want to see that. And, you know, and, and what makes that all such bad TV and, they, and that these clubs don't seem to get the sake of, for the sake of selling those tickets for whatever 
how much that get nets them. You got a bunch of people sitting back there who are not paying attention to the game. They're eating nachos. They're talking to each other. It's a really, really tense moment in the game, and they're not even watching. They're talking to each other. They're having a good time. It's like this is the world's worst setting for a game. The visual of that that suite right behind home plate just isn't great because it doesn't look like those people are ever into the moment. But let me say this, Kevin. The first year in that ballpark, there were no fans there. There were cardboard cutouts. The second yes, that third, was very creepy, by the way. Very yeah, creepy. The second and third years, quite frankly, if you were a fan, it probably was better to pay attention to your nachos or to something on the TV in the suite rather than the product on the field. I don't think that the ambiance in this park has gotten a fair feel because every ballpark, well, not every ballpark, but just about every ballpark is going to feel less like a great atmosphere if the product on the field isn't good. If people are, in, if the games are good, if the play, if the if the team is good, if people want to show up and watch that game, and I also think, and we can talk about some of the rule changes if you want. But I think as the game starts to move a little bit quicker, people are going to be a little bit more wrapped in attention. I, I still think that there was probably a happy medium that you could have gotten with maybe maybe people behind home plate, but some signage there. But it, it just looks like you're looking at those people's laps or their meals rather than them than rather than them just being a backdrop. It's just such a prominent factor. I mean, you know. Obviously, you see fans at, behind every home plate, um, but they they seem more distant. They seem a little up. They seem a little obscure. I don't, I don't know what it is. It just seems like sometimes you feel like you're looking more at those people than you are at the at the hitter, catcher, and umpire. It, I, I, it's I, like a lot it's of this involved in all of that, and that you know it's probably a longer conversation, but um, I, I it's just I I, I think it's I. I think to this point, the visual has not been great. And, and I'd like to see um, if that if, if our feeling of that visual changes at all, if the team is a better product on the field. Yeah. Before I render, or, or I render final judgment on that. Or at least put more attractive people back there. How about that? No, no, just kidding. All right, let's talk about the rules because I got to tell you, I think this is uh, uh, really fascinating. Uh and let me start with the the whole idea. First of all, obviously, the big one being that the games and I, they had a report today. The games were, I think, at twenty minutes shorter so far in spring training than they were last year. That's what MLB says. And uh, so the average game now is two thirty nine. Um, from a personal standpoint, I've never had a problem with the fact that the games are long. You know, I like going to baseball games. I, I like watching baseball games on television. If they last three hours or three and a half hours, I kind of like it. You know, it's just, it. you know, it's. I, I like baseball, and then I like being a part of that. So the actual length of the games has never bothered me unless I'm riding on deadline, and then it bothers me a lot. Uh, but having said that, what I do like more than just the actual length of the game being shortened is just the pace of the game. Uh, for the, when you, to me, you get a crisp pace you're going to get crisp play and and i believe that 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 the players will respond to that i i believe that the guys in the field especially will really come to appreciate this the standing around in baseball is to me is always a thing that has contributed to errors uh to lack of attention lack of focus because especially the outfielders they're, they're just standing around out there forever waiting for something to happen and then you you know then something happens and you're just all of a sudden, you're distracted almost by the actual play of the game. So I'm I am all in favor of this kind of stuff. I don't care what people are saying about uh, you know oh look at look what happened in the game the other day when you know it was uh, it ended up being a call strike instead of a walk off walk. Right. Well, look. I mean, listen. Nobody goes to football games to see huddles. Right. Nope goes to basketball games to see coaching timeouts. The The idea here is to put more action into the game. And if you put more action into it, I think it keeps people's attentions more. And if the game lasts 240 or the game lasts three hours, because you're involved in action, 
your mind's just not going to wander as much. And I, I, I've got to tell you, you know, the little bit that I saw before I left, I was impressed. I, I said this in the video series that I do on, on our YouTube channel um, yesterday. There's going to be hiccups and there's going to be moments along the way, particularly in spring training here, that make you go, ugh, I don't want a game decided this way. But that's also part of the intent of enforcing this from day one of spring training is to say, let's put it into action in real time. And if there's anything we need to adjust before the season starts, we'll do that. With just about every rule change that Major League Baseball has made, there's been some amount of, of adjusting as the season goes on. And the idea here is let's get all of this out of the way right now. Um, you know, I, I think, I, I, and, and I'm sure that the intent would be when the game is on the line and there's two strikes and two outs in the bottom of the ninth, not to have a game decided by an automatic ball or strike call. But I think the idea of enforcing it now basically says, look, we're not going to mess around. Let's get this right. And, you know, if if a batter's not set until seven seconds are left with the game on the line, maybe we'll overlook that. And there's maybe some umpire, um, some umpire leeway there. But in the meantime, the idea is to make these games move. And it's not so much of, because I've heard from people like, Oh my God, I've never cared about the time of game. I don't care about this. Well, number one, if you're taking your kids to a game on a weeknight, um, you do care. Number two, the Especially idea, during school. What's that? When they're in Especially school. Especially during school, yeah. Um, the idea is to simply make the game more interesting. And there is nobody can tell me that it is interesting to watch a guy back out of the batter's box and tug on his gloves or watch a pitcher go through, you know, um, histrionics on the mound before he gets set every pitch. And so taking that stuff out, just kind of, it's like editing the game a little bit. And I think it, I think it creates, I think it creates more edge of your seat kind of interest in what's going on. And I think all of the other moves that have been made will only increase the feel, not that baseball has changed to something that you're not familiar with, but more that baseball is going back to the roots of what it was, particularly yeah. the, more, the enlarging of the bases and creating more opportunity to steal bases, um, the eliminations of the shifts. You know, people can say, oh, well, Ted Williams was shifted. Yeah, Ted Williams was the only guy shifted 80 years ago. Now 80% of players are getting shifted on every on every pitch. So we're really going back to what we did. And I thought what Marcus Simeon said after the first exhibition game um, of the spring when we asked him, what did it feel like? And he said, it felt like baseball. And the tone in which he said it was just very much, this felt right. Yeah. yeah. Here, here's, the th here's the thing about it. There's a, this is all good on a number of levels. First of all, young people, uh, baseball has lost young people, right? Young viewers. And so it's trying to get them back. And one of the reasons it's trying to get them back is because they're all ADD. You know, they, they, they don't want to watch something that takes forever to play. You know, uh, an NBA game takes two and a half hours. You know, there's only one NFL game a week, so they don't care how long that one is. You know, you a soccer game takes a couple of two and a half hours. You know, uh, a hockey game is two and a half hours. A baseball game is sometimes getting to four hours, and that's just too long for young people. They 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 don't they want to get in, get out, and that's it. So that's that's a number one good reason to do it is because of that. Secondly. I don't want to hear any players, pitchers, anybody complaining about it because this is this is all on you. And they had to institute this rule because you guys ruined it. it they, for the baseball that I grew up watching, games would be like two hours long or, or maybe two and a half hours long because guys got in the box. They didn't mess around because the pitchers didn't allow it back then, right? They'd throw at your head if you did anything. If you, if you stepped out more than once, they're going to hit you the next time you step in the batter's box. So all the things that have been created and, and baseball's having to do here have been caused, or the, 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 the time element of it, has been caused by players taking too long and taking too much time. So I have no uh, sympathy for them whatsoever if they've got any complaints about this. I really do think they're going to like it. And I do think that, as you said, by instituting it now, by the end of the year, they'll be so used to it that it won't come up to that. A, a hitter will know, I got to get in the box and get ready here. 
this is a big this is a big play here. And you won't have situations where it's the seventh game of the World Series and and the guy gets a, a, you know, it's a call third strike on him because he wasn't set in the box. And I, 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 do say, I, I do want to say, I think Chelsea James from the Washington Post cited this the other day, that um, the first week that they instituted the clock in the minor leagues, there were about 1.76 infractions per game uh, the first week. And by the end of the first season that it had been in place, that was down by more than half, so it was under under one, um, maybe about a half of a, a little bit more than a half of an infraction uh, on average per game. the The spring training game started with I think the first thirty five games there were basically the same rate, about one point seven three infractions per game. And so, if you see the similar kind of thing, this is going to be um, this is going to be a real infrequent occurrence. And the idea that a game would be decided by it is going to be even, you know, even rarer. And I, you know, I use the example of how many we've seen sometimes when a there's always going to be imperfections. We've seen games that are decided by walk-off box, right? Nobody comes to see a game decided by a walk-off box, but it's happened. Um, and so there's there's always going to be imperfections in the system. Um, but some of that comes down to umpires and their sense of game management. And I think it, it stresses that for umpires. And some of it comes down to players simply understanding the rules. And I, that's what this spring is for. Yeah, I'm all for it. So, so that was good. You know, I have not been able to watch much, you know, games. And, and that when you, even the games I've watched, they don't always show you how the defense is set up here with the new thing about having yet to have two guys on, on either side of the infield and their feet uh, on, the, on the dirt and not in the grass. So I'm I'm eager to get to spring training to see what that looks like again to see actual players lined up in traditional positions. I don't know how much it's affected. You know, it's too small a sample size to tell how it's affected hitting whether guys are getting hits now that they didn't get before. Uh, but uh, I think one of the unintended consequences of this to me, which is a good one, is that I just feel like the hitters will go to the plate now with more confidence. You know, thinking that if I get if I get you know, the barrel on this ball, I'm going to get a hit. I've you got know. a point. Yes. And, and there's it's been too many times in the past where guys are just hitting lasers and they're outs. You know, it's just, you know, it, it, in the history of baseball, if you hit, if, if you hit a ball 100 miles an hour, uh, that's that's probably a base hit or if not a home run, right? And 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 I think over the last four or five years, it got to the point where well, that's a 50-50 proposition at best, you know. Uh, you know, there was always times when it, when you might hit one right at an infielder, but not at some guy who's standing forty feet in the outfield. That that never happened. And so I, I do think that I, I think the banning of the shifts is a great thing too. I think these were two great things. I, now I will say, uh, I I don't know how I feel about the the bigger bases, the pizza boxes, as some people are calling them. I, I don't know that that was really necessary. You're you're already incorporating these other things you're already limiting the number of throwovers so i i i don't know that that was really necessary and i'm still not in favor of the ghost runner I, the ghost runner just feels like something that we made up at recess and i just i, I just don't like it you know? well first of all we don't we don't refer to it as the ghost runner um it's yeah. the manfred man um for me uh, so since, manfred man since it has brought manfred's um uh uh invention i i I don't have a problem with it only in this regard. I just feel like extra inning games have had gotten to the point where they, they wreck teams for three or four days afterwards. And I think that, that this, uh, because of, of pitching usage and things like that, I, I think this just gets it kind of back to normal, but I will say this, right? Yes. MLB has put that rule on the books permanently, but you go through this here and if game times are two thirty five, two forty. And you say, you know, we'd like to change the rule back. There's nothing that stops it from happening. So, yeah, um, I, I, I've got to tell you that I, I, I think that to to be up in arms about these rule changes at this point is, I, I just think it's a waste of time because I think by and large it's going to be good for the overall uh, fan interest in the game. And I God, don't, I don't think you're going to notice. <laughs> No, no, no question about it. I, it, it these are all good. You know, I, I'm a traditionalist for the most part, but when something's wrong, you, you just fix it. 
you know, and, and the, the game had evolved to a certain point where it's like, can we not see the, the issues here? Can we, you know, with the shifts especially, can you not see what this has done to baseball? I mean, that's yeah, just there are too crazy. Many, to me. many people who were caught up with it. It's timeless, it, all this stuff. Yes, it's timeless, but nobody, nobody has an eternity to spend on watching guys pull on their batting gloves. You know, we have just added stuff that is not action. It's one thing if you added action. What they've added was not action. It's standing around. Yeah. Well, as, as I said, <clears throat> the players have nobody to blame with themselves. You know, so if, if people want to blame something, blame that, you know. It didn't used to do it. If you go back and look at those games, you know, from 40, 50 years ago and watch how they played the game back then, it's completely different from the way we had gotten to now. All right, let's get in on the rest of our Rangers uh, time for this segment, uh, a little bit about some of the players and how they've done. Martin Perez threw three innings, uh, and it was just Martin Perez he was last year. Uh, I, I got to tell you, um, I started being a believer in Martin uh, when I went down to Houston to cover a series, that was probably, what, about a third of the way through the season last year. It was and, May, graduation weekend. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, uh, I just felt like he, he he's finally clicked. He, he gets it. He's, he's controlling his, his emotions. He's become the player, the pitcher that they always thought he was going to be. And, uh, and he makes the all-star team. And he comes back this year, and for all that effort, he has now become the Rangers' fourth or fifth starter. Uh, and and he goes out, and, and like I said, uh, his first start of the spring, it's just the same old stuff. Three three good innings. You have a one run. Uh, he's Martin Perez. So, uh, Evan, I want to ask you that. Uh, is it possible that he, he could end up being uh, the best of the Rangers starters this year? Well, I think if he is the best of the Rangers starters, it either means that the season has been – a complete and total success or a complete and total failure. Um, <laughs> it would be between, um, he's not designed to be the best starter, obviously on this team, but he is designed to be a very good pitcher wherever you put him in the rotation. And I just feel like this is a deeper rotation than the Rangers have had maybe ever in terms of talent. It's certainly got more ability to strike out batters than any Rangers pitching staff ever has. Um, and the fact that you can slide Martin now into whether he pitches ultimately in the three, four, five spot just speaks again that you've got a rotation that is set up to compete in the playoffs. Because if he's your third starter in the playoffs or he, or he starts a game four in the playoffs for you, great. But you'd like to have a true ace at the very top of that rotation. And Jacob deGrom is that. Um, what I do think is most impressive is that, Kevin, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started the show. But you go back to all those prospects that the Rangers touted, um, you know, from 2010, really over the course of the last decade. And th those, a lot of those guys came up at young ages and... Very quickly, the narrative about Martin became he was too immature, too immature, or too emotionally immature on the mound and got rattled too much. Well, here he is. He's about to turn 32. Um, a lot of those guys are out of the game or don't have regular roles with teams, and Martin appears to be settling in to a really strong second half of his career. He has grown more than any of those prospects and players that the Rangers brought up in the in the early 2010-2015 era. He's gotten more self-awareness of who he is, and I think he's used his experiences to make him better. Um, I've been impressed by just watching him in spring training. The first bullpen he threw, Cole Reagans was right on his shoulder, another lefty watching him. Martin had more interaction with Cole than any other pitcher had with anybody, you know, that was kind of in the background watching them. Um, he's much more engaged and was engaged last year with the younger players. And, and I think this is a guy, you know, as he said to me last year, that when he, when the Rangers decided not to pick up the option on his contract at that point in time and let him go, he felt like he had lost it all. And there's two different ways guys could, could handle that. And Martin chose to, to the mature way, to what do I need to do to get it back? And here he is, happily married again. You know, he's a father. 
Um, he is an all-star. He's going to be pitching for Venezuela. This is a man who, you know, may be in his 30s as a pitcher, but certainly seems to be in his prime as in terms of, of the emotional growth of a baseball player. Well, isn't, you know, you've always traditionally seen that the, the, the always the line about left-handers was they develop later for whatever reason, and they and they end up pitching later. I, I I always have felt like the big thing is that they're just such a small sample size of left-handers as compared to right-handers, and uh, and they can get away with uh, less stuff uh, than right-handers can. And and obviously, Martin doesn't throw really hard anymore, but he had his location last year was phenomenal. Uh, and I and I think that's the kind of stuff that can carry him a long way. I'd I'd, I'd hate to see Christian think that ah we've got enough guys and we got enough guys coming. I don't need to sign him to uh, an extension. I, I really think that they need to uh, keep Martin around. I think he's as you said, not only is he really pitching well, pitching in his prime. You to me, you, you need to reward a guy who this was somebody that they valued highly at one time, right? And he finally lived up to it. Uh, and he had to go someplace else and had to make a long circle around to get to it. But I think it's a good signal that to young guys in the system. I think it's a good signal that that he wants to be here. He he loves pitching here. How many pitchers have ever loved pitching here? You know, now it might be different now with the with the roof on and the air conditioning. But you know, no one ever wanted to pitch here. That's been that was you know the unsung thing. Uh, well, not really sung. You're not singing them about the fact that it's. It's 100 degrees outside. But one of the, the biggest reasons for the Rangers' inability to win over the years has been because it's just so dang hot here. Okay? Let's just be blunt about that. You, you know, uh, and, and for all the fans who, who lament the loss of, 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 of Globe Life uh, uh, Park, I get it, you know, but it was just too hot. Uh, and, and it was it made it too hard to attract pitchers. Kenny Rogers told me that one time. Nobody wants to come here. It's just too hot to pitch here. Uh, it, it's a lot of hard work. So uh, I, I think this is, to me, I, I just feel like a, a new time kind of building here with the Rangers. I think this ballpark's a large, a large part of that, uh, whether it's a warehouse or not. Uh, and I do think that uh, they are developing some people here. And I, I do think that they have shown the willingness to go out and spend to, to bring in pitchers. I think it's really important. Chris Young has that background as a pitcher. He, he gets it. He understands it. Uh, and maybe it, maybe in the end, it just took somebody like him to really make it happen. Uh, I, uh, listen, I think all the circumstances, as you're running through all this, the circumstances in my head really are just running that, you know, things have changed. You do have a pitcher running the organization. Um, and and I, I know that people will cite, oh, Nolan Ryan was here. Again, there was a difference in, in Nolan's role with the team and Chris's role with the team in terms of just how hands-on they are. They've got a different stadium and how it plays for pitchers. They've got new sets of rules. Um, and so maybe the circumstances are all aligning. The the Texas Rangers, uh, especially a team that has spent its first-round picks on, on pitchers over the last two years, are on the verge of becoming a pitching-first organization. Well, that would be something. You know, I grew, I grew up in Houston with the Astros. That's what they were. They were always pitching first. Now, they didn't always win. But uh, the Astros have a long history. You know, they're, they're the, the inverse of the Rangers. They have a long history of developing pitchers and have always had them, you know. But they also they have a long history in the Astrodome where it was where offenses went to die, right? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, and yeah. that was always the thing was it was so hard uh, to, uh, to you know, you hit you guys hit home runs. That was the whole gist of the Joe Morgan to Lee May trade. You know, they were trying to get – more pop in that team. And so they traded a guy who became a Hall of Fame second baseman, Brady right. May. So I'm, I still haven't gotten over that trade, actually. But uh, anyway, maybe one of these days I will. All right. That's going to do it for our. Before we get out of here? Uh, do I? You want to talk about any offensive stuff before we get out of here? Well, we had to talk about it really fast, though, because Christian keeps waving flags and giving us extended time and, uh, and we keep running over. Uh, yeah, we can talk about the offense a little bit. Nate Lowe. Uh, obviously, uh, Tim Kalashar, our old pal, is out there in surprise right now. I wrote about him for today and talked about the numbers he put out there, which were really phenomenal. And I, and I still feel bad about taking a shot at uh, Nate, you know, going the opposite way uh, early on last year. And, uh, you know, he he really turned himself around as a hitter uh, last year. There's no, there's no question about that. I uh, did a lot of good things. If he can 
if he can do that again this year, I'm not saying he has to hit 300 again, uh, but if he can, you know, get himself an OPS of about, you know, 780, 790, right around there, uh, maybe 800, uh, then then he's going to make himself into one of the best first basemen in the game. Now he's got to he's got to work on his fielding a little bit. He's still uh, kind of a work in progress over there, uh, but uh, he was a most consistent hitter on the team last year. And and we and I think that got overlooked a little bit because we spent so much time talking about the other guys in the infield and what they weren't doing. And whereas Nate Lowe was much more than you could have expected. He was. He was the most consistent hitter on the team. Um, he addressed the biggest weakness in his game offensively, which was he was able to hit velocity last year, and it was really a two-year process in getting him to trust where he started, and I, he got to that point last year. Um, the next question is, how do you maintain it? And I listen, I think the Rangers, I think the number that the Rangers have in mind for him, if they do have a slash line number in mind for him, the OPS would start with, with an A. Um, he was an 850 OPS guy last year, and I think he can um, he can do that uh, or do somewhere in that vicinity. Um, I think he's going to benefit from the fact, and we can, you know we can talk about Mitch Garver a little bit, but he's going to benefit from the fact that if he's if he's surrounded by Mitch Garver being back to being a full healthy player and a productive offensive player and a Dolis Garcia. You know, you've got Seeger and Simeon in front of you, and those two guys behind you. That's a that is a legitimate top five that can compete with anybody. Now, certainly there's some issues in, in the bottom half of the lineup in terms of unproven players, but I think that you now count Nate Lowe um, as a legitimate offensive threat, and he established himself that way last year. Yeah, there's some work he needs to do defensively. I think as the year progressed last year, and he spent more and more time on that, he got somewhat better defensively. But no player is going to be perfect. And if if Nate's an 800 plus OPS hitter at first base, um, he's going to contribute to this team for a long time. Yeah, he is. Uh, and uh, you know, it'd be nice to think about that, right? I mean, think about how many players in in this team uh, outside the the rotation have been they've been there for multiple years how many of those have been there for four or five years i mean that's in the old days yeah you guys were uh, you know on your team for four five nine ten years in a position um and that just hasn't happened with the rangers you know well, sometimes i go back and look at these position they just haven't developed any players period and no they haven't they developed haven't. anybody that they want to extend for a long period of time so I think this would be really something if he could do that. If he, you know, you think about that, this infield would have potential because of the age of these guys. Now Marcus is a little older, but he's certainly taking great care of himself. This could be the Rangers' infield for the next five years easily uh, if these guys all play up to their potential. And I don't think that's asking too much for them to do that. Now you brought up uh, Mitch Garver, and, I, and we were discussing this beforehand uh, about. Obviously, the pop that he has, you, you can see it. Even though he had a bad year last year, you could see that. And they would find out, you know, he had the arm problems, and and uh, it's kind of remarkable he was able to do as much as he did. But, of course, uh, his big year uh, was 2019 in Minnesota when he hit 31 home runs. And, of course, I knew he'd hit 31 home runs that year. But until you brought this up, I didn't realize it. He played in 93 games that year. He hit 31 home runs in 93 games. Now, I'm no math major, but if he'd have played 150 games, that would have meant he would have hit 50 home runs, right? The same at the same ratio? Well, yeah. I mean, if he if he if he carried that out for 550 at bats, but remember, you know, I mean, I think the drop off becomes more precipitous for catchers because of the toll on their on their bodies. Um Oh, no question about that, but, but the but the point is that this guy has real power. And, oh, he's got legitimate. Uh, no, yeah, no doubt. Yes, and and he showed that. Uh, I guess that was um, uh, in Monday's game. He had a, hit a shot in the Reds bullpen, or was that Sunday? Uh, like, were, like, uh, yeah. So uh, he. Teams. So, but between him and Jonah Heim, uh, that's a lot of potential for offense from the catching position. You know, I would think that would make the if, if he plays like he should, and if 
if Jonah doesn't wear himself out like he did in the second half. Uh, and then, of course, you throw in Sam Huff. I don't know how much he's, he's going to end up playing, but certainly he has a lot of offensive potential as well, a lot of power anyway. Uh, then the Rangers could have one of the best, you know, uh, catching groups uh, in baseball because Jonah's a very good defensive catcher besides being an offensive catcher. So uh, I can't remember a time uh, in the last, well, I don't know, maybe since Pudge, when they when they could feel this good about their catching situation, both offensively and defensively. Uh, I would uh, I would tend to agree. I mean, I think they felt good about um, Jonathan Lucroy the the year that they went in with him, and then he, you know, the bottom fell then out. He, he was terrible. Yeah, I mean, talk about a guy that I, I was talking to uh, one of our pals, a scout out there, and and uh, and he said hey, he can't even catch the ball. I mean, it was just, it, that's how bad it got. You know, it's like he went from one of the best catchers in baseball, certainly one of the best offensive catchers in baseball, to just terrible when he was here. My gosh. That's one of those things that just didn't work out so hot. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Rangers segment. Uh, we're we're going to talk some more next week. And you know, when, uh, when I'm out there in Arizona, Evan will be back before I leave, and we're going to do a podcast from out there. Maybe we'll sit outside, sit on the uh, on the plaza out there, and the and fans can hear all the stuff going on. It's gonna be around. so much fun. Yeah, we'll have big fun. We'll have big fun out there in Arizona. All right, we're gonna do a little potpourri here. I know how much you love to do a potpourri, Evan. You got a potpourri there in the in the in your little office? No, no potpourri. I have a candle. You have a candle? All right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's let let's light that. Let's light your little candle. This is a uh, this is a Taos Desert Sage candle from Double Hawk Candles, which, by the way, is actually Warstick. So it's um, Ian Kinsler's company. And, really, uh, they make yeah, candles, it, dude. For uh, my wife has a lot of candles that are a little bit too fru- fruity for me. This is yeah. a night candle for me, right? So, so, so Ian's making candles besides bats, bats candles pickleball paddles they do everything over there and he's managing the israelis and he's helping to run the franchise i mean the guy's a superman he is superman he's superman all right okay let's talk about our our, our little potpourri segment we're going to talk a little bit of of everything here we got 10 minutes we're going to do this in uh let's talk about first of all about what happened out there the other day when the Mavericks are playing the Lakers, they're up by 27 points in the first half. I'm thinking, wow, they are they are really showing something here. I know the Lakers aren't so hot uh, this year, and uh, but they still have potential to be a playoff team. And this is really demonstrating something here. And then the floor fell out of that game. Uh, they blew a 27-point lead. In the NBA this season, teams with a 27-point lead or larger were 138-0. and zero. The Mavericks are now on the wrong side of that hyphen. Uh, so after that game, Jason Kidd was criticized by some for not calling timeouts or more timeouts uh, in the middle of some of these Laker runs. And uh, some of that was, and this is what he said afterward, but some of it is an old coaching axiom that, don't look over here to me to try to figure this out. You guys are out there on the floor. You figure it out. And I think this is a little bit of a tough love approach. That was one prong of it. The second prong was after the game, Jason Kidd did not single out Luca by name, but he referred to the immaturity of the team uh, and uh, in situations. And when he considered that, the other four starters were all 30 or older. Uh, Luca who, as a matter of fact, as we're taping this on Tuesday, turns 24 today. Happy birthday, Luca. Uh, I can kind of remember when I was 24. Um, he, uh, he he seemed to be explicitly talking about him. And and he, and he Jason acknowledged that in practice the next day, that he said, yeah, I, it's, a, it's a little bit of tough love here, which he has done in the past. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it's a good thing. His specific complaint in this game uh, was that uh, Luca was constantly complaining about calls or non-calls to refs and was not getting back on defense as a result. 
uh, and that was lending to some of the problems. My biggest issue in that game, I, I'm, I'm just going to say this must have happened because he was distracted because in the last oh, 30 seconds of the game, there was an inbounds play. Kyrie Irving has tried to get the ball to Luka. He throws it toward midcourt because he was being guarded from the, from the, from the other side. And, and Luca apparently thought that he could not get go into the backcourt to retrieve the ball, leaps across, grabs the ball, flips it back over across midcourt. A Lakers player gets it, and that game was uh, essentially over at that point. After the game, Luca says, oh, yeah, my bad. I, I forgot that, you know, I, couldn't, I could go into the backcourt to get that. It's like, look, okay, he's just 23 years old, but the guy's got a, basketball, a huge basketball brain. How do you forget that? You cannot forget that kind of thing. That is inexcusable to do that. Uh, and that should have come with a huge apology on his part for letting that happen. I have to believe that Luca gets so distracted at times by the officiating that uh, that it has an impact uh, like that on his game. So from my standpoint, and I've gotten several emails from people mad at, at Jason Kidd, and I, I told them, hey, I'm all for Jason Kidd playing this way. Somebody needs to call Luca out. Remember last year, uh, about this time, when Reggie Miller uh, on, on the TNT broadcast said, hey, he's out of shape. Uh, and, and he was uh, out of shape. And the, the Mavericks are, were kind of walking on eggshells about all that. And after that, that point, uh, Luca got hurt. And during that time he was hurt, he tried to take better care of himself. Well, I got to tell you, he doesn't look any better shape now than he did last year when Reggie Miller called him out. Luca's not doing a great job staying in shape. Uh, he he does have a tendency, I have to believe, he talked about this last year, his eating habits are, aren't always good. Um, he, look, he's 24 years old. Uh, you get away with a lot of things when you're 24 years old. Uh, but he needs to learn that this is my, this is, is, is my occupation. This is my job. And part of the job is to put myself in the very best position to be the very best player that I could be. He's a wonderful talent. Uh, but A, he needs to learn to take better care of himself uh, and so that these things will not even be questions anymore, that people wouldn't even bring it up. And B, he just got to start stop yakking so much at these refs. 31 technical fouls since the start of last year. is third in the NBA behind uh, Draymond Green and Trey Young. Uh, it's just, you know, it's unacceptable. Um, I would just say that, listen, he is a great talent. And to sit here and break down things about Luca that are uh, not up to snuff seems a little bit um out of focus when you consider all the other shortcomings that the Mavericks have, but he is the center of the franchise. He is the core of the franchise, and he's got to be the best player he can possibly be, and we're not talking about him needing to be a better shooter or a better passer. We're talking about him needing to not chirp at the referees as much um, and to just focus on the things on the court that he can control. So, um, that's the next step for Luca in my mind is to, he's, he's going to have to mature a little bit. And they went out, they traded for Kyrie Irving. They gave up a lot to trade for Kyrie Irving. They clearly want to have a shot at making a deep run this year. And if that's the case, there are no excuses, right? You can't say, well, ah, it's my bad. There's no excuses. You can't let a 27 point lead get away. Um, you can't, you can't just slough off mistakes guys have to be held accountable guys have to be called out and guys have to more importantly guys have to address their shortcomings well there's no question about that uh and and as as kid pointed out you can complain to the rest but you do it during timeouts you do it you know when somebody's taking a free throw and you turn to the ref and you say something you explain something to him you as, as kid said i don't believe i've ever seen a ref stop a play when the other team's got the ball to allow you to make your point and then reverse that play. They're just not going to do that. You know, when you complain it as much as, as Luca is, it, it is not a point of, Hey man, you got to change this call. 
this that was a bad call. It's I'm frustrated. I'm 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 emotional. You know, just what we were talking about about Martin Perez, right? You're letting your emotions get the best of you, and you're getting the best of your team. You just simply cannot do that. You're kind of being a a 14 year old is what you're doing, and he's got to grow up. Uh, and he's got to understand I can do these. I can complain, but I got to pick my spots here. Uh, and that's the other thing too. If you're can complaining all the time, then the rest are just going. They're not going to listen to you. You know, they're they, look. They're people, and and they got emotions too. And it's like I'm tired of this guy. All he ever does is complain. You know, if if, if the guy complains every once in a while, and it, 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 he's going to be right probably. You know, uh, be right when you're complaining. Uh, you know, because there. He, he he's fouling people, you know, and and and, they, and he so he, he understands the game. He has an unbelievable understanding of the game, and he needs to, to make sure that he gets it right. Uh, okay, we have also in our potpourri segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that uh, I put this in my newsletter the other day, Evan. Uh, there's there's some talk that the Rams might be wanting to unload Jalen Ramsey, uh, the cornerback. Um, not because he's not a, a good player anymore. Pro Football Focus ranked him third among cornerbacks this last season, uh, and that was at 28, which is pretty good. He was probably four or five years older than everybody else around him. Uh, he's still really good. Uh, and if we go back to looking at when uh, he was drafted in 2016, of course, that was the draft where the Cowboys took Ezekiel Elliott fourth. Uh before that draft, uh, I was a, a Jalen Ramsey proponent, uh, and I said, if you, the week of the draft, I wrote that if if you take Jalen Ramsey in the first round, knowing that people wanted to run it back and the Cowboys needed to run it back, you can probably get Derrick Henry in the second round. Um, as it turned out, they could have done exactly that because Jalen uh, Ramsey was still available. He went fifth to Jacksonville, and. No, look at Mac. No, no, look. You can always nitpick any draft, right? There's picks that don't get made. But I just like the fact that I said this before the draft. Uh, what if they had gotten both those guys? Jalen Ramsey is still uh, a uh, a Pro Bowl player, a, a an All Pro player. Actually, he's he's made the Pro Bowl six times in a row. Uh, Zeke Elliott is not playing at that level anymore, and, and never will again. And uh, and for that matter, Derrick Henry has had a better career than Zeke Elliott has had. The other, the player that the Cowboys took in the second round that year, of course, was Jalen Smith. Well, that they got was a Jalen part, right? Yeah, they got a Jalen. They just got the wrong Jalen. Correct. So, uh, so my here's my point, the better point, other than just pointing out that for once I was right about something. Uh, uh, was why, that why the Cowboys not listening anymore? I did. I don't know. I, I, although I did sanction Taco Charlton, so I, I do feel bad about that. I said that was okay to take Taco Charlton. That was a but. That was the year they could have had T.J. Watt. So that didn't turn out so well. Uh, but the thing is that if, let, let's say, you know, the, so there's speculation, pro football focus is speculated about what the Rams would want for Jalen Ramsey. Uh, and I believe they had for, I believe if Carolina wanted to trade for him, it would be two second round picks. I got to tell you, if I could get Jalen Ramsey for two second round picks, I would do that. I think he's playing so well at this level the Cowboys, their biggest weakness on defense is at cornerback. Uh, they they do have problems stopping the run. There's no question about that. But they are – Deron Bland played very well last year. I, but I feel like if you could put uh, Jalen Ramsey opposite of Tra- Trayvon Diggs and then with Deron Bland you know, as your third cornerback, I believe that you'd have one of the best secondaries in the league. Uh, and I think that would really help the Cowboys – immeasurably uh, going forward. So the question is, would the Cowboys make that kind of deal? He's he's set to make $17 million this year. Um, that probably means if you do that, you could make that work, but that was money they were probably going to try to use on Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, if I could have one or the other, I'd much rather have Jalen Ramsey than Odell Beckham Jr. I'll accept that. Yeah? Okay. All right, well, let's run that up. I let's just call feel Ram. Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of good Jalen's out there, um, and the Cowboys took the one bad one, right? The, yeah, Jalen Tolbert, Jalen Ramsey coming in, Jalen Carter. Cowboys got Jalen Smith. They 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 got short- and then they got and then they got Jalen Tolbert, and he can't play either. You know, they keep taking the wrong Jalen's. Yeah, they do. 
Yeah. So, uh, so that's that's an issue. You know, we've had a, 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 and I'm kind of a little bit loath to bring this up. We're speaking of the Cowboys, uh, now there's been a, a new lawsuit revived against Jerry Jones, uh, a sexual harassment lawsuit. Uh, so we got that on top of what happened with whatever it was that happened with Michael Irvin at the Marriott. Uh, I, I we still don't know exactly what happened. Marriott has not released uh, exactly what the complaint was other than that an employee says that Michael said something to her in the less than one minute that he talked to her and walked off. That was really disconcerting. I'm not saying that he couldn't have said something, uh, hurtful in that time. It would seem like that it seemed a little unusual that you would, you could do that in such a quick amount of time. I don't know, but, uh, but boy, if there was ever a team, uh, in the NFL, that uh, you would be kind of expecting these kind of things to happen, isn't it? The Cowboys. I, I'd probably they're I, they'd probably be second on my list, and probably second in the NFC East. Um, I think the Commanders are still number one. <laughs> still the yeah, with, yeah, with Daniel Snyder, that's a good point. Uh, so uh, I think that's probably a, an excellent point about them. That's more, I guess that's more of a uh, systemic thing there with everything that they've done. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Speaking of the commanders, uh, they released Carson Wentz. Uh, he is once again moving on. Uh, of course, that was the quarterback that the Eagles took in the first round in 2016 when the Cowboys took Dak Prescott in the fourth round. So, uh, how's that, that work was out for the Eagles, huh? That's, that's what worked out for them. How many Super Bowls have they gone to since they took Carson Wentz? Two. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's the thing about that, isn't it? Uh, they won one and lost one. They've been to three Super Bowls this century, uh, and the Cowboys haven't. Uh, that, that's the thing about that is so crazy. The Eagles had such a terrible NFL history, you know, until this century, and now all of a sudden they've, they're, they're blowing past the Cowboys. Who knows where they're going to get? They can keep this up. It, it, it's a little bit like I was I was speaking to a, a, a women the women's club of Dallas yesterday on Monday, and I brought, someone brought up the fact that uh, are we, aren't we going to talk about the Chiefs? They, and she said that's the winning team in town. I said, yeah, it's a great point. It's the it's the one NFL team in uh, one NFL owner in town that's winning. Uh, you know, we always said that the. You always just assume the Cowboys were the right team to stay, right? When the Texans and the Cowboys were here at the same time in Dallas and the, and the, back in the '60s, and then they went to Kansas City. Well, I got to tell you, with Patrick Mahomes as their, as their quarterback, how many more Super Bowls are they going to win? Uh, he's good. I, I yeah, guess he's really good. Next, and we started to do this right, but the next time that you, you, me, and David are on together, I really would like to get you guys to rank your top five NFL quarterbacks of all time because I want to know if Patrick Mahomes at this point is one of the five best players to ever play the position. And I think you can make the argument that he is. Well, it, it always depends on how you want to – what are the parameters? You know, if, if we're just talking about sheer skill, you know, let's let's say it's like a pickup game and I'm going to take the best player, you know, uh, it, it – Yes, I would say right up right now that he's one of the five most talented. You know, certainly there's no question about that. But he, and he, but Aaron Rodgers, I would have always put as one of those guys too. But Aaron Rodgers has only won one Super Bowl. You but know? That's, that's the thing. I mean, I think that they, where the NFL is concerned, the grading of all-time great quarterbacks, part of the formula is have you won multiple Super Bowls? Um, yeah. Whether that's right or wrong, that's part of the formula. And I mean, you know, I would love, I'd love to know, you know. You start talking about guys, you start talking about Brady and Bradshaw and Staubach and Steve Young and Joe Montana. Um, that's. Well, I mean, you know, that's always the thing about like Joe Montana to me was always a perfect example. Not a great athlete, not a, you know, uh, not a great arm. He played in the perfect system. Uh, and I, so to me, I always kind of downgraded him. I always just felt like he was playing in the perfect system, but I, but I, Went to the University of Houston, and I I uh, I saw that game then when uh, Notre Dame came back and beat U of H in the Ice Bowl of the Cotton Bowl that year, when they had to give Joe uh, an idea. Game that they won for the Gipper. 
It did not. It was not for the Gipper. No. no. Uh, Joe's just a winner. You know, I, I do believe there are guys who are just winners that they're not going to lose uh, because they're they're so cool and they're and they're so composed and they and they make things happen. I do think there is an element of that out there. There are quarterbacks like that. Joe was that guy. You know, the it's the, gonna the be greatest. A, I, I I do think that's going to be an assignment for you and David. I would like no, no, they. You, you, you let that. Uh, you let that. Probably the most might have been the most talented was John Elway. Uh, uh, you know, and in what he didn't win Super Bowls until the end of his career, when really he was just kind of handing the ball off. Uh, so we there are a lot of Peyton Manning either. So, but I'm going well, to get the two of you to do that. Well, well, all right, we'll do that. It, it, there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, that whole question of how much of it is the system they were in, the people were that were around them. How much of it is just their sheer talent? Uh, if you took the guy with the most talent and put him with the best team, would he have still win? It was kind of like the old Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith argument, right? That, you know, Emmett was winning rushing titles and, and Emmett's, you know, the all-time leading rusher. But if you're asking me, who would you rather have for one game, uh, Emmett Smith or Barry Sanders? Oh, I'd, I'd rather I mean, he's an unbelievable runner. So How would you in time there, Christian? I think we're in. I think we started this on Tuesday. It's now Wednesday. I think uh, MLB has decided to impose some new rules on on <laughs> our segments. Move here. Um, yeah, unfortunately, quickest our, our, hour I've ever spent with you. Yes, it is. It's been a lot of fun talking. And that's going to do it for our podcast, podcast this week. Hopefully, David Moore will be back next week, and we can talk a little bit of other stuff as well. And uh, that'll be fun. And so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks. And we'll see you next time.